Thank you, Claire. All who are able are invited to stand. We'd like to take a moment, instead of traditional passing of the peace, we want to make sure that the fact that we're together doesn't mean that we are uh, disconnected from one another because we can't hug. So look around and, and see one another and offer signs of peace. You may be seated. <clears throat> and now a reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know things, the things that have been taking place here in these days? And he asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it, it, it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it, And then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? 
And that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and other companions gathered together. And they were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. According to Arthur C. Clarke, Ernest Hemingway was supposed to have won a $10 bet, which of course was no small sum in the 1920s, from his fellow writers, and they paid up without a word. And the bet was over who could write the saddest short story in the fewest words. Hemingway's offering was six words, according to legend, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Now, the story of Hemingway's bet is almost certainly apocryphal. It doesn't even appear until 1991, 30 years after his, his death. But as writers often say, it's too good not to be true, right? I mean, to be able to capture the grief, the broken dreams, the thrum of anguish in those six short words is enough to break even the hardest heart. In our gospel for today, we find a similar short story. But instead of six words, it's three words that reveal broken hearts. I mean, what an epically horrible weekend. Friday was awful. Blood, torture, execution. Rome, of course, had had its way again suppressing a possible insurrection, putting the screws to a potential political revolutionary. And by the time Sunday rolled around, the crowd that hitched its wagon to Jesus' star was crying in its raisin bran, not to mention anxious about hearing the sounds of the distant hoofbeats that would signal a violent fate like the one they'd just witnessed two days prior to the man that they'd call, uh, uh, taken to calling t- teacher. On Sunday, there were stories floating around about the fact that when some of them went to the tomb, they couldn't find a body. Well, that was a bizarre turn of events, and not one that Jesus' followers found immediately comforting. I expect that everyone who'd been a follower of the erstwhile Galilean Messiah would have been especially wary about talking to strangers at this point. I mean, talking to strangers was a tough call in the ancient Near East, too. Not only down at the Judean Kroger, but especially out on the roads. I mean, on the one hand, you never knew what kind of bandits and scoundrels you might run into out there. People were regularly waylaid while traveling. Luke himself, a few chapters prior to our gospel lesson this morning, includes the story of just such a robbery. You remember that one? Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. that's, That's how the parable of the Good Samaritan begins. So being careful with strangers in the ancient Near East was, well, it was in everybody's best interest. In a part of the world where You know, a rash of carjackings could quickly divest you of your Buick, not to mention your life. 
But on the other hand, there was also a cultural exhortation to practice hospitality, uh, to welcome strangers and wayfarers. The reason for this, of course, is because they didn't have McDonald's at every traveler's oasis back then. I mean, part of the social contract involved offering hospitality to strangers, if for no other reason than because you never knew when you might find yourself out on the road in need of a Big Mac and a McFlurry yourself. We still, I think, feel the tension of those competing cultural claims, don't we? Keep your eye on strangers, but help people who are in need. I mean, it's tough. I don't envy the two disciples who are out on the road headed to Emmaus when, according to Luke, Jesus comes near them. But they don't recognize Jesus, which is a real poser, frankly. Apparently, there was something about Jesus after Easter that masked his presence, even to those who knew him best. And I don't know why that is. It certainly works as a literary device in this case, though. As Jesus shows up, unrecognized, sort of butts into the conversation, and he says, hey, fellas, what are you, what are you guys talking about? And the text says that they just sort of stand there looking all mopey. And finally, one of them named Cleopas says, seriously? I mean, how do you not know what's going on? You know, the things that have been happening around here? How do you not know this? And Jesus sort of plays dumb, and he says, mm, what things? Well, now, of course, they're incredulous. I mean, how can this guy be so oblivious about what's happened? I mean, we just had a big public execution. Guy named Jesus, prophet, pretty big news. It's ringing any bells for you. And Jesus sort of stands there with a blank look on his face. There's nothing. Well, they can't believe this stranger is so uninformed about current events. And they look at each other like this guy's from Mars, and they, they sort of give each other the, 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 the teenage eye roll. Anyway, they say, well, that just happened the other day. And today, when some of our friends went to tend to his body, it wasn't there. Now, the women said they saw angels. Some of us went to the tomb, and sure enough, they were right. Nobody anywhere. But the next part is the one I find vexing. I mean, we're in on the joke, right? We know that the stranger is Jesus, sort of like Huck Finn at his own funeral. But the two disciples, they still don't know it's him. I mean, even after he goes on at great length about what the death and resurrection mean. Jesus tells the two clueless disciples about how the Messiah had to die, sort of buttressing his argument with what I'm sure must have felt like to his two hitchhiking buddies, a long-winded rehearsal of Jewish history, starting all the way back with Moses up through the prophets, and again with the eye-rolling. But see, they still don't know who the stranger is. Now, I'm pretty sure that after his lengthy soliloquy, the two disciples must have felt like they picked up the hitchhiker who just won't shut up. I mean, like the, the sweaty guy on the plane on his way back from a gripping Tony Robbins seminar who wants to share his life story from DNA up to the moment of pre-flight boarding. He's got some wild tales to tell this guy, they're thinking to themselves. 
kind of acts like he knows everything. But, I mean, who's he to tell us about Jesus? I mean, we follow Jesus around. We know way more about him than, than this drifter. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. As they approach the village that they're going to, Jesus, who's still a stranger, acts like he's got someplace else to go. He just keeps walking. And they look at each other, knowing that they can't just let him keep traveling by himself. I mean, it's dangerous, remember? So they roll their eyes again. They've been told numerous times about bringing home guests for dinner without having some kind of warning. But one of them remembers his manners and says, hey, pal, I mean, why don't you just, why don't you just stay with us? It's going to be dark soon. And so Jesus goes in to eat with them. And when he sits down and begins to break bread, suddenly everything becomes clear. The two disciples finally see Jesus for who he really is. They'd walked and talked for some time with the stranger, but he stayed a stranger until they offered this small gesture of hospitality. And they welcome a stranger, somebody they don't even know, and it's in this invitation to come, sit down, have a bite, stay with us, that Jesus finally makes his appearance. And then everything changes. Which, of course, ought to be instructive to us about the centrality of hospitality in the new reign of God that Jesus has just unleashed. Our responsibilities to one another. But remember the day. The day was Sunday, the Jewish Monday, the day that everything started to get back to normal. To say that Friday had been a bad day is not to say nearly enough about the horror of seeing your hopes and dreams dashed on a cross. And Saturday was kind of a blur. Everyone's sitting around in shock trying to figure out what had gone wrong. And then Saturday, of course, was the Sabbath, so nobody was out much then. But today... Sunday. Streets are full of people going back to work after another weekend that was too short. And you can imagine how they feel. How could people be so insensitive to their grief? Couldn't they see that everything they'd staked their lives on was now lying cold in a borrowed grave? Or at least at one point had been lying down cold in a borrowed grave. And they keep wondering to themselves, why does the world not take notice? Just stop. You can hear the broken dreams as the two unnamed disciples make their way to Emmaus. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And it was going to be so great. We're going to remake the world, throw off the bonds of oppression, restore justice, live in peace. I mean, we knew it wasn't going to be easy. The really good stuff never is, but we were ready for a new world. And there it is, the beginnings of a devastating three-word short story to rival Ernest Hemingway. We had hoped. We're in the third Sunday of Easter, and Easter is a celebration, right? It's that point on the horizon that tells us everything's going to be all right. That even the worst the world has to throw at us isn't enough to thwart God. As 
Richard Swanson suggests, I mean, we like to hear future tenses. We like it when families say that everything's going to be okay, that they will go on, that they will go, everything will get back to normal. We like future tenses so much that we reward people in deep grief for reassuring us that the sun will rise tomorrow and that life will go on. But in this unguarded moment, the walking disciples give voice to a discovery that every adult shares. Very often, what matters is that we find ourselves speaking of matters of hope and faith in the imperfect tense. We had hoped. We can rally ourselves and polish up our future tenses when we must, but often that involves skating on thin ice over the shifting, flowing waters of past imperfections and confounding disappointments. Good Friday, Holy Saturday, they represent the life that so many of us live, littered as it so often is with disappointment and despair, with grief and anguish, with broken hearts and broken dreams. And in our rush to get to Easter, we often don't attend to the grief and despair of Good Friday and Holy Saturday. That period when people who've experienced great loss and heartache begin the process of coming to terms with the fact that they now live in a completely different world, one they neither chose nor wanted. We had hoped. But now hope feels like it's been sucked out of the world, throwing us back on ourselves and all the future tenses that talk about how we'll eventually recover, eventually be able to wake up to a world that makes sense, at least at present seems impossible. Because too often when we're forced to sit with our grief, we realize that not only has something been stolen from us, but the future that we envisioned in hope has also taken the red eye to nowhere. I mean, no, most of us know about this abandoned hope, this stolen future through personal loss. Someone we love is gone. A job we counted on is no longer possible. A marriage was dissolved. A friend has slipped away. Our children forge a path we wouldn't have chosen for them. I mean, these, these kinds of leave-taking mean that the shattering of hope is common to all of us. We've all made the journey to Emmaus, brow-knitted, head-hanging low, the landscape gray and barren. But there are other kinds of anguish that move beyond the personal, death of hope that devastates whole communities. And so many of our neighbors live in a world where fear of becoming the next Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, or Dante Wright, or Adam Toledo is an ever-present burden to bear. We had hoped is the cry of our siblings who go to bed every night angry and afraid of a society that invents newer and ever more deadly ways of communicating that your life doesn't matter as much as ours. We had hoped is the lament of women who've come to face to face with the reality that our culture not only harbors, 
but too often embraces and promotes a patriarchy constructed to keep women in their place through harassment and undervaluing, through disparagement and violence. We had hoped is the cry of the LGBTQ community as it continually has to wake up to the fact that equality is too often a state of affairs reserved for everybody else. A community that has every reason to believe God has left them holding the bag. Or if not God, then the people who so casually claim to be in relationship with God. We had hoped is the wailing of immigrants and refugees who thought that the USA would finally be a new start, which might offer them a safe place in the world, only to discover that this country still has a deep capacity for punishing people who longed to live among us, but who didn't have the good sense to be born here. We had hoped is the cri de cour, the cry of the heart of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, of those whose hopes have collapsed and for whom the future tense is a painful reminder of something stolen, of a grief and despair that can't be papered over with a few well-meaning platitudes. Good Friday and Holy Saturday are God's acknowledgement of and determination to share our pain, to know our grief, to stare straight into the eyes of of humiliation and loss. But Easter, Easter, on the other hand, is God's refusal to surrender to a world that kills hope and all the beauty and goodness that inspires it. Easter is God's resounding no to all the powers and principalities that steal the light from our eyes, that corrupt justice, that sacrifice true peace, and that deal with delight in death. Easter is God's unwillingness to abide a future defined by loss and grief. Easter opens up a new horizon where oppression and exploitation no longer rule, where the machinery of the state no longer serves only the powerful and the wealthy, where where hope is no longer mindless dreaming, but the promise of a new world built on love and justice. The three saddest words maybe we had hoped, but for those of us who follow Jesus, The three words that restore lost hope are, He is risen. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.